Well, I was uh, last night. I was watch, uh, looking at some YouTube videos, um, and for whatever reason, the YouTube feed that kind of came up was the most emotional uh, returns of people that have been uh, on assignment, usually in the Middle East. And so we have all the uh, different military veterans coming back and being reunited with their families. And I don't know if you've ever seen a video like that. Um, it's pretty emotional. I was like soaking my shirt and Abby was in bed sleeping already. And I'm just like drenched going like, wow, you have to be dead to not be moved by some of these videos. And in some de- to some degree, I feel the same way now. It is so good to be home. It's so good to be back with my church family. Um, I won't ball in front of you right now, at least I don't think, but, uh, but I got to be honest, like the, the, we had an incredible time away. Uh, we were obviously most of the time here in Port Angeles still, but uh, we had the opportunity to visit a number of different churches, uh, which by the way, I can say this uh, emphatically that uh, there is actually one church and this is one of many congregations that are meeting right now. Uh, and so we had the opportunity to, to fellowship with the body of Christ in a number of different locations and many contexts, and yes, even to some different theological stances, and it didn't matter because guess what? God was being glorified and Jesus was being exalted and everybody was being filled with the Spirit. And so guess what? It was incredible. And we got to have a better pulse as to kind of what God is doing in our little church community here. And you know what? I look forward to seeing how we as a church can be better partnered, not just aware, but better partnered with the Church of Christ. And so uh, I look forward to seeing how God is going to lead us in that way. Um, I I do want to say this. uh, I'm really, really, really thankful for Pastor Corey and for Pastor Tom and for Chairman Aaron, who's no longer here. Um, I went into a much of small context, and one of the questions I had was, if this pastor pastor were to take off on a sabbatical, as I am currently experiencing right now, would they even be able to get away with it? And I feel incredibly blessed to be able to walk away and literally unplug. Um, I mean, I think Neil Pinso said it well, actually. The fact that it feels like I have to kind of get the engines started again and, and kind of the gears are turning again and I feel like maybe I'll fumble my way through my first sermon again. You know, it's almost like, wow, I literally got to step out and just rest and be with my family. And we had an incredible time together just to be present with the kids, to wake up and not have to leave and to not come home just to leave again. Um, all those things that are kind of probably normal to my rhythm as a pastor, but it was nice to just stop and just be. And uh, um, I, can, I was reminded of this as well. When I first went into sabbatical, I was like, man, I'm going to have so much time. It's going to be incredible. I'm going to have so much time. And so I started saying yes to everybody in their housing projects. And, uh, and I look back like a month later going, what in the world is happening to my time? Uh, time is like water. It just fills in automatically. And so even though I put some duties aside, it so quickly filled in with other things. And they are all really good things. But one of my endeavors going into sabbatical as I felt the Lord leading was really the Lord calling me out to the wilderness, much like Jesus went to the wilderness to be with his father. I really felt the Lord saying, I just need time with you. There's always going to be, the needy and the poor will always be to you. The, the opportunity to serve will always be there, but I, you need to spend time with me. And so coming back from a road trip uh, and injuring my hand, God grounded me in such a way that uh, I got to you know, like walk 10 miles on the waterfront trail and just to be with my father. And it was incredible. And I pray that you can have the experience as well. If you're retired, you can have that experience right now, actually. So you have the opportunity to spend lots of time with Jesus. And I guarantee you will not be disappointed. Um, I had prayed about how I was going to reenter. Uh, some people have thought that I would come in and I would give you a verbal fire hose vomit of Everything that has been pent up for four months, I'm not going to do that. I think in time, you know, things will be fleshed out, the things that I have learned, uh, but I didn't want to just kind of just 
I don't know, just dump it all on you in one fell swoop and uh, you walk away somewhat kind of deer, you know, deer in a headlight kind of a situation and going, what just happened? Uh, I felt the Lord really saying, Aaron, just come back gently. Just come back patient and just enjoy. And so we're here just to be back with our church family and we're just so grateful to be home again. And so I look forward to seeing how God is going to lead us. Um, I will say this as one final thought. There is nothing like stepping back in order to better understand how to step back in. There's nothing like removing yourself and kind of getting a kind of a big picture and having mental space to be able to know how to proceed and move forward. And I feel like the Lord's given me great clarity. I feel like the Lord has given me some insight on what it looks like to re-engage the ministry that he's entrusted to me. Uh, I was able to evaluate or assess the last 11 years, both my five years as a family pastor as well as my six years as a lead pastor. And uh, uh, I really felt the Lord going, Aaron, it's time to come back, but it's time to come back slightly differently. And I think those things will be fleshed out all in due time. But uh, I'm really eager. I'm very excited to be home with you and to, to, to resume uh, relationships with you. And I trust that God has some incredible um, events in store for us. Not only that will unify his church together, but he will, be all, he will be honored and he will be praised as a result. So thank you for the kind words and the reception. Guess what we get to do this morning? You just completed kind of a summer of Psalms, and this morning we get to start a new series. And this new series is actually going to be uh, the, the, the book, we call it a book, it's actually a letter of 1 John. You might recall when we ended our series through the, the letter of 1 Peter, the epistle of 1 Peter, Peter, his, one of his really his primary predominant points was to really draw the attention or to, to remind the believers to hope in the salvation that they had received. In other words, they were going through great suffering, and the suffering was only going to intensify. And so Peter's going, hey, guess what? Life is hard now, but look what awaits you. You have this eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison that awaits you. Hope in that. Life may struggle, be a struggle now, but it is so temporary. But eternity with God is forever, and it is going to be a billion times more you can ever imagine. And then John, his emphasis, which I'll flesh out in a, a little bit more in just a moment, he raises this idea because Peter's saying, hope in this salvation that awaits you. The question is, do you actually have that salvation? Because you cannot hope in something that is not yet true of you. You can't, you can't anticipate something that actually doesn't belong to you. And so one of the primary emphasis that we'll see through this letter of 1 John is that John is actually going to draw us to what authentic faith or genuine faith really looks like. It's going to help us better understand, am I in fact a believer? And if so, what are the symptoms? What is the litmus test, so to speak, of a true follower of Christ? Now, I, this morning, I really want to um, give it kind of an overview. My wife and I, we usually in the wintertime, we like to... Uh, we like to do puzzles. I don't know if you're, any of you are puzzlers in here. Uh, we, uh, on, on the rare occasion that we actually have time and energy in the evening to put a puzzle together, but usually in the kind of the winter months where it's darker, the fireplace is going, it feels cozy, you're not really hanging outside very much, and the kids are playing so nicely together and, and sharing, you know, all those normal things that are probably true of your family too. Um, but we like to do puzzles, and, and one of the things that, you know, first of all, it has to be the right kind of puzzle, because it has to be something I actually enjoy looking at. I don't like to just put pieces together, but I actually have to have a reward at the end beyond just finishing it. And so we get nice, nice, beautiful landscapes, you know, with like this kind of mountain house, kind of in the, in the mountain somewhere, and you get trees, and there's usually a lake or a stream, and I'm like, oh, I would love to vacation here. That's the kind of puzzles I like to, to get. Um, and so when we open the puzzle up, there's usually a strategy, right? Uh, you have to first grab all the pieces, the edge pieces, and you make your border, right? Right? Yeah. You're like, no, I don't do puzzles, so it doesn't really matter. 
That's probably wise in some ways. But we, uh, we make our border and stuff, and then we all start to take the pieces, and we kind of group the light pieces together. And it's also helpful because once you have the border, you generally know, oh, this is kind of where the cabin is kind of situated within these parameters. And, then, and you're like, oh, this is where the river's going to be. And so you kind of put those pieces together, and you flip all of them over so you can see them. And then, as you, uh, and then you also have to have a flat surface that you're working from. And then what you also do is you put the picture of the entire puzzle in front of you. And you always have that picture in front of you because the little pieces only make sense in light of the bigger picture, right? You're staring at this picture. This is what we're seeking to put together. And this little piece is like, all it is is just a, a, a weird shape with some color on it, and you're like, it makes no sense in light unless I look at the larger picture. That is what we're going to do this morning. That is what we're going to do as we open this book or this letter of 1 John. We're going to get at the, the broad picture because guess what? As we go verse by verse and passage by passage, it only makes sense in light of the greater picture. And so that is how we are going to approach this letter this morning. We're going to get the 30,000-foot perspective, so to speak, so that we, and we're going to draw the border so we know what we're actually walking into. Now, there's a few questions I want to ask and therefore answer for us this morning. In this kind of overview as we, uh, of, of 1 John, we're going to first ask, first of all, who in the world is John? I'm not going to presume to think that you have a, a, an exhaustive understanding or any understanding of who John is, but we're going to ask the question, who is John? And then we're going to talk about when and where this letter was written and, and who was it written to and, and why in the world was this guy named John compelled to write this letter in the first place? And in his writing, what were the major themes included in this letter? And then we're going to do something that I have not done before or have been a part of ever in my church life. We're going to read the letter in its entirety. No, we will not be here till noon 30, but we're going to lead the, read the letter in its entirety. It actually does not take very long. But first, let me give you some background information. Let me ask this question. Who is John? John was one of the 12 disciples that followed Jesus. He, was that, he actually had a brother named James, both James and John. They were the sons of Zebedee. They were two of the 12 disciples that followed Jesus. Now, James, the brother of John, is a different James that wrote, than that wrote the book of James because the guy that wrote the book of James, named James, is actually the brother of Jesus. So it's a different James. And to make it more confusing, there are actually two James that belong to the 12 disciples. Thoroughly confused yet. John is the brother of one of the Jameses that followed Jesus uh, for his three-year ministry. He was actually one of the youngest disciples, believed to be about 17 or 18 years of age. So put that in perspective. He's a, what we call a teenager still. And he's called by what they later come to know as the Savior of the world. And he says, follow me. And so James and John drop their nets. They, they leave their father's fishing business temporarily, and they go and they follow Jesus. James and John had a reputation. In fact, they were not just only called the sons of Zebedee, but Jesus actually referred to them as the sons of thunder. James and John were the sons of thunder, and they, were, they had that reputation for very good reason. Uh, they had a reputation uh, of being somewhat hot-headed and impulsive with their words. They would be considered to be more intense than the average person. Uh, there were moments in which James and John, with little to no subtlety at all, uh, showed that they cared more about their own uh, needs or interests than the interests of others. In fact, many there were some times where the disciples were becoming more resentful of James and John, and their mother even came and tried to say, hey, Jesus, can my son James and my son John have the right and the left-hand uh, side of the throne in heaven? And of course, Jesus responds and says, that is not mine to give. But you can kind of get a glimpse as to, like, even mom's being an advocate for them. Mom wants James and John to have the best seats in the house. They want special privilege here. And John and James were not like, no, mom, that's not the right thing to do. No, they were eager. They're kind of like, yeah, what did he say, mom? So James and John were very much about their own interests, their own considerations. And some of the disciples, as I said, began to get uh, a little resentful. 
I just lost my spot here. Um, after a, how, the, the, here's the interesting thing, though, church family. After spending a few years with Jesus and witnessing his death and resurrection and, 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 and being filled with the Holy Spirit, John later became known as the Apostle of Love. Here's a guy who has a reputation of being hot-headed, impulsive with his words, always wanting kind of first position at the expense of others, and he later becomes or became known as the apostle of love. It's kind of a side note or application. I believe that's what the transforming power of the gospel does to people. That's what spending consistent time with Jesus does to people. That's what Jesus intends to do for you and for your family members and for your friends when you spend consistent time with him. The fact is, and we don't need to go into it right now necessarily, but we all have our default ways, right? We all have our, our mannerisms and our, and our habits and our personality uniquenesses that we're either likely aware of or at least known for, right? Right? And some of those are good, and some of those may not be so good, right? And yet, when we walk with Jesus consistently over a period of time, you inevitably become changed. Not because you change you, but because spending consistent time with Jesus changes you. You cannot help but be changed when you are in the presence of Jesus. You have, for example, Peter, right? Peter went from having this, what we call this condition of foot and mouth disease, right? Peter spoke and then thought about what he was supposed to say and goes, hmm, probably could have come out differently. He was also impulsive with his words. And yet the irony of all ironies is here's a guy who probably should just be quiet at times when he chooses to be vocal, and yet he becomes the spokesperson for the apostles. And God even uses him in his first sermon, 3,000 souls are saved and thousands more to follow. The same goes for John. John was hot-headed and desired the seat of honor in heaven. And yet when he spends time with Jesus, he becomes the apostle of unconditional agape love where the consideration and the needs of others always took precedent. He became known for his gentleness and his graciousness. That's what spending time with Jesus does. Perhaps some of you have family members, perhaps you yourself sitting here this morning, perhaps you have coworkers, whatever it may be, and you're scratching your head and you've tried everything, And nothing seems to change. Can I just remind you and encourage you? Don't misunderstand and don't neglect the transforming power of spending time with Jesus. The greatest thing you can do for yourself or those in your life is to bring Jesus to the table. And when Jesus becomes the focal point, over a period of time, change and transformation are inevitable. That's what Jesus does. And that's what he came to do. And he's doing it all over the place, brothers and sisters. We see it in the life of the disciples, and he's doing it today. And his mission is not changed until he returns. A little bit more about John. John was the only disciple that was not martyred. All other 11 disciples were martyred for their faith, but John was not. That even raised another little dispute among the elders or the, the, the disciples. But John was exiled to the island of Patmos for a period of time, and that's where he actually wrote the book of Revelation. Uh, by the way, Malik's class is picking back up again on the 11th of, of this month, right, of September. And so, yeah, so even if you've missed the first chunk, it doesn't matter. Join right on in. I'm sure there'll be a quick overview, preview of picking up where you left off. Uh, that is available before the main service starts. I highly recommend you making that a priority. What else are you going to do? Be drinking coffee? Drink coffee over there. 
John is also credited for, the, for writing the Gospel of John as well as 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and John. So when you think about it, the New Testament, a significant contri- contributor to what we call the New Testament is by the disciple named John. And he was the last living apostle because he did not, he was not martyred. And he, uh, therefore, as a result, he was kind of held in high esteem. He was a sort of sage to the younger, less mature Christians. And uh, really, his, his authority and his teaching became really the kind of uh, held in high esteem among all the, all the first century churches. And so uh, it would be kind of like us alluding to Pastor Emeritus Mike Jones or even John MacArthur, uh, people that have had a long tenure of following Jesus, and now they do, we just kind of get to bask in that experienced wisdom of walking with Jesus. And so that is how John was perceived among the early church. Now, where and when did John write this letter? Again, I, I, some of us have this idea. In fact, it kind of, I connected the dots even in my own study. But I, when I thought about John being exiled to the island of Patmos, I thought he was exiled and died there, but that is actually not the case. He was exiled there for a period of time, but actually he ended his time in the city of Ephesus. That is where the book of 1 John was actually written. In fact, it's considered to be the last letter, his last writing work. So it was really the last work of the New Testament was in the city of Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey today. Um, The fact is, John is believed to be the author of this letter, not because he uh, gives identity in the letter, but because of the writing style is very similar to the Gospel of John. In fact, they write the exact same way. And John, because he was always... here's Here's the crazy thing. John wanted the seat of high position. He wanted to sit either to the right or the left of Jesus in the kingdom of God. He is a man who's always looking out for his own interest. And then when he writes, he spends time with Jesus. He is so transformed by Jesus that he does not... even include his name in his gospel or in this letter. He always referred to himself as the apostle whom Jesus loved, but he would not even say his name in a sense to, to receive credit, whereas before all he wanted was the credit. And so here's a man, and even in the, the, the early church and the early church fathers who knew him personally or knew people that knew him personally, they all acknowledge him that this is the man who wrote this letter. We received this letter by John the Apostle, the last remaining apostle until Christ returns. Now, what compelled John to write such a letter? Why was John, you know, was he just bored at an old age? Was he just looking for something to do in his retirement? Why was he compelled to, to take the time and, and write and send, get this letter duplicated and sent to all the churches in Asia Minor at that time? What was, the, what was the compelling motivation? Well, there's a number of things, a number of reasons why he wrote this. First of all, we must understand that it did not take long after the church began for false teachers and other heresies to cause disruption and confusion for the followers of Jesus. There was a growing heresy called Gnosticism. Gnosticism is from the Greek word gnosko, which means to know. So Gnosticism prided themselves in knowing. Now, it's interesting to kind of correlate that or compare that to our kind of cultural prevalent uh, thing today where Agnosticism is probably the more common belief. And agnosticism is the, the fact that you cannot actually know for certain anything. So you can't know for certain. You can't be dogmatic about any one truth claim because no one can know for certain. Not to digress or get off on a rabbit trail, but it is kind of interesting that agnostics are very certain that you cannot be certain about the truth claims. So it is interesting. But that's not what the heresy was in John's day and age. Gnosticism was a growing uh, uh, belief and heresy that says, we know the way. It's almost like a, a secret way. 
You might, you might want to think of the Da Vinci Code, right? These secret societies that kind of exist. And most of the general people, they're all sheep, right? But we are kind of those who have a, the ability to know or have some uh, secret insight, especially when it regards to salvation. There's a certain thing you must know. Most people don't know, but we do. And so it's causing all kinds of disruption and confusion and, and even a, a doubt in the lives of young believers in the early church. Gnostics also believed that all matter, what we see, what we can touch and stuff, all matter was evil and only those things that were spiritual were good or pure. Therefore, as a result, since all matter is evil, they, they were emphatic or uh, dogmatic about the fact that Jesus could not have taken on a human body because if he took on a human body, he would therefore be evil because a body is evil. That's why their idea was always being released of the body because the body is evil. However, if Jesus did not come in the form of a human body, then Jesus could not have died. And therefore, he could not have been your substitute. And therefore, you and I have no hope of resurrection ourselves. So this heresy was promoting an idea that if it were true, leaves us remaining completely hopeless in regards to God's promises of hope and salvation and assurance. And that's why John will say over and over and over again, I write these things, I write these things. And one of those things he writes for is to assure people that this is what a follower of Jesus looks like. This is how you know that you're saved. Isn't it interesting, brothers and sisters, that every faith system in the world, there is a, there is a degree or an element in which you cannot know. It's always kind of like, I hope. There's a probability or percentage, perhaps. But you're always left wondering, I hope. Hope of probability. But the hope that, that Scripture defines, or that Scripture describes, isn't a hope of probability. It is a hope of absolute assurance that what God says is true is, in fact, eternally true. And so John says, I write these things so that you know without any doubt God does not want to leave you in the dark. He loves you enough to go, I want you to have absolute certainty that you are, in fact, a child of the king and that what awaits you is not some ethereal idea, but what awaits you is the promise of eternal life to be in the presence of Jesus. And yes, even as we are, uh, that we were reminded of this morning, to be reunited with loved ones, family members, friends, all because we belong to the church of Jesus Christ. I won't go into all the details and nuances of Gnosticism. It's not really the point. The point is that it was causing much disruption in the early church. And so John writes to confront the heresy with truth and to displace confusion with clarity. But there's another reason why John writes this letter. The fact is it doesn't take long for, people to, for people's faith to become a little more... Um, Complacent, dull, passive. Perhaps you can relate. Have you ever observed a brand new believer? Nothing else matters. Jesus is the greatest thing ever. But give us some time, and our hearts kind of grow a little cold. We kind of pick up old habits again. Some of those things that took a long hiatus are now resurrecting themselves. The fact is it can happen to all of us and probably has happened to every one of us just in some way. And so John writes as a way of being a boon to the church of Christ. To encourage one's faith. To, to, to initiate a, a renewed excitement and, and a newness and a vitality in our faith. He wants to revitalize a passion for Christ in his church. After all, when you do look at Revelation chapter 3, what Jesus has against that church of Laodicea is that they're not hot, they're not cold, they are lukewarm. Hot and cold have benefits. Lukewarm is only good for being thrown out. 
And so he says, I will spit you out of my mouth. So John states, I write these things so that you might share in the joy of fellowship with one another with the Father, that you would not sin in chapter 2, that you would be protected from false teachers, and that you would be assured of your eternal salvation. What are the themes that he emphasizes over and again? And again, he, once he says something, he'll say it again multiple times. That's good for us because we're forgetful people, right? And so we need to hear it over and again. John isn't redundant. He's not absent-minded or forgetful in his old age. No, he repeats himself over and again so that it's ingrained and it goes deep in our soul. We'll observe that John actually identifies some key components of what it means to be Christian. Specifically, he identifies three essential components to the Christian faith. First being, a Christian is devoted to truth. Faith and truth really go hand in hand. Again, in the midst of many heresies that are forming and causing all kinds of disruption in the early church, he's calling us to the truth that they have received from the apostles. He's like, remember these things I've written to you. Don't veer away because guess what? That's what we're so easily prone to do. And he's also saying an essential component of an authentic believer is, that, is one who pursues wholeheartedly a life of righteousness, of holiness, of obedience to Christ. And thirdly, he, he repeats himself over again. He says, another essential foundational truth for a believer is that of love. Not as the world describes, by the way, but love as defined by our Heavenly Father. And we'll get an opportunity to unpack more fully what that love really looks like. The fact is, if these marks of truth and righteousness and love are assured of us, then the, the, the fruit of that or the result of that is that we have a joy-filled life. We are, in fact, becoming holy. It's not just declared of us, and we have the assurance of salvation. So what I'd like to do right now is I'd like to read the letter that John wrote to the early church. With that in the back of your minds, I'd like to read this letter. You can listen. You can even close your eyes. Good luck. You can uh, read along with me. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Uh, whatever suits you. But we're going to read this letter in its entirety. And the reason why is because, like any letter you might receive, though I know it's somewhat a lost art, any letter that you might receive, you don't just read part of it and say, I'll, get back, I'll pick that up next week. No, you read the whole letter, right? You don't say, ah, oh, dear Aaron, oh, that's so good. I'm just going to pause there for a moment. Man, that was just, I'm going to just chew on that. Ooh, hmm. I'll get to the rest at a later date. No, we're going to, you read the entire thing because you want to know everything that someone took the time to sit down and write. And so we're going to do that together. And then um, at the end of service, I will have some concluding thoughts and a charge or a challenge for all of us to consider. So let us read this letter that John writes as a way of encouraging and protecting the early church. Again, here's John the Sage, his last writing before he goes home to be with Jesus. 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and which we have heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But... If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 
If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness, and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, But the anointing that you have received from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is not a lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink, shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us? That we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is because it does not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. 
And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are children of God and who are children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have had, that you've heard from the beginning, and, and that we should love one that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? <laughs> because his own deeds were evil, and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anybody has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments, because we keep his commandments and do what he pleases him. And this is the commandment that we believe in the name of the Son of Jesus Christ and love one another just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandment abides in God and God God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. We should make a song out of that. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. 
Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe that the, lo- the love of God, that the, the love that God has for us, God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we might have confidence for the day of judgment, because he is, as he is, so also are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not yet been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we, have loved, we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater than for this is the testimony of God that he, has bo- that he has born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has a testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe in God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has born concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, we shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has been born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Pray that God blesses us, not only with the reading and the listening of his word, but that we walk away going, thus saith the Lord. Yes, John wrote this letter, but it is God who inspired John by his spirit to give us words of life. One of the emphasis that John repeats over and again is he draws attention all back to the person of Jesus and especially what Jesus came to do. What did Jesus come to do? He came to take away the sins of the world. He says in John, verse John 4 and 9, he says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us. So when we ask the question, how does God show his love for us? He's like, like this. 
He sent his only son into the world so that you and I might live through him. In this is love. Not because we love God, but he loved us. And he sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Brothers and sisters, apart from Christ, we are dead in our sin. Apart from the finished work of Jesus Christ, you and I are hopeless. We are lost and we are dead and we are deserving of eternal wrath. That is what the Bible promises to those who are not in Christ, but to those who are in Christ, who have received the love of God, who are indwelt by the Spirit of Christ. There's the promise of eternal life. Father, we are a people in much need. We are a people who are fickle and who are easily prone to wander. We are a people that are, are where our flesh is weak. And we are bombarded with lies every day. Lies that promise huge dividends and, and, and huge return. And they always leave us wanting. But Jesus, you came to give us life. And not just the promise of eternal life one day, but abundant life that begins today. You came to set us free. It is for freedom, brothers, that Christ came to set us free. How have you loved us, God? How have you shown your love for us? By sending your only Son to take on the punishment we deserve for our sin so that we might be declared righteous and innocent and free. That's how you see us. And Jesus, you made that possible. So Father, for those of us who are your children, your disciples, may we rest in that promise. And for those of us who might, even as we read in John's letter, maybe we fear your return because that tells us we have some work, we have some business to do. May we be quick to confess our sins. May we run boldly before the throne of grace to find help and mercy in time of our great need. But Father, we're so grateful by this truth that we are assured of eternal life, not because of our emotions, not because of how we feel, not because of what we have done, but because we have you. Because you are in us. That you have tabernacled in us. That you have given us your spirit as a guarantee, a promise of eternal life. So Father, may we respond in the worship and praise of you for that great gift, that eternal gift that you so freely and lovingly gave to us. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for loving us first. In your precious and holy name, amen. 